Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Bromowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Right now we want to shift the conversation, Paul. Yep. to what is going on in what has become the epicenter in some places of the crisis, which is nursing homes and healthcare centers for immunocompromised individuals. And there's no one better for us to speak to than Shelly Sun, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Bright Star Care, which is a national private duty home care and medical staffing franchise. Uh, so with a national look at some of those more vulnerable individuals, Shelly, can you give us a sense of how big of an issue the coronavirus and its spread has been for you and your staff? Thank you so much. I think for us, we, we came into the crisis um, with all of our locations, Joint Commission accredited. So, you know, hand hygiene and safety protocols were um, paramount to our day-to-day activities. Um, so we have had, you know, relatively minimal, you know, less than 5% impact of our uh, caregiving staff and our clients. But it's certainly something with the vulnerable population, the most at-risk population that we take care of every day that we've tried to make sure that we've taken what was a higher standard before and elevated it. Uh, We um, began looking at PPE orders back March 7th, you know, back before, you know, it was really, you know, starting to affect um, our business and we were seeing any positive cases at all. Um, We were in a four-week queue to get uh, PPE PPE, um, ordered. We've made available to every frontline worker an N95 mask um, because we believe it is a essential when they're going in and out of a client's home. There's no way when you're providing personal care or skilled care in the home that you can be uh, six feet apart and do that uh, type of care. So making sure that we uh, contain um, the virus and not have it spread to our most vulnerable, keeping people at home, allowing them to recuperate if they get it at home and not further overtax our hospital systems um, is how we've really tried to lean in and be part of the crisis. I think generally what we've seen across the industry is where you have uh, much more uh, people coming and going or clustering of people. So you've seen nursing homes much harder hit. Um, And in the homes, we had to really, you know, draw a fine line on those where we had um, deployed PPE early, um, but some of the hospice and Medicare home health that might be coming in and out of the same home were not. Uh, So we required if they were going to, that we were educating the family on what those um, employees of other agencies should have if they're coming in and out of the same home. So we kept the clients safe, but also our workers um, that would be coming in and out of that environment, uh, because the cases that we did see early uh, were from a hospice worker or Medicare home health worker that uh, tested positive. uh, And then we know that our worker had been exposed. In most of those cases, our worker did not contract. um, But we increased our standards for the home, uh, for our caregiver, but also the partners in the care continuum that we were uh, alongside of on a daily basis. So Shelly, have you in the home health care space seen a surge in demand as you know this coronavirus puts people in hospital, but, but then maybe they come out of hospital or maybe people choose home health care versus going into what is, seems to be a much higher risk uh, nursing home or, or uh, type of environment? 
Yeah, I think you've seen an interesting trend over six weeks. So I think we're starting to see a surge in referrals. We're at all-time high the last 10 days in terms of referrals um, and inquiries for care uh, compared to the three or four months prior. So I think you're starting to see people come through hospital stays, get ready for discharge, and want to go into a home environment and have uh, that care continuing them to rebuild their um, um their ability to ward off anything else um, and tr- and safely transition into the home. Uh, during the you know early stages of the crisis, we um, saw you know quite a few of our clients, and we've been tracking it. We've had over we we service about fifteen to twenty thousand families um, in forty states. Um, we had about three hundred. 400 uh, clients across the country, kind of early stage, uh, mid-March, stop care. Um, We've seen about 10 to 15% of those cents come back as we're tracking that as well, um, where I think people thought it might be a two to four week uh, scenario. And now as we look at that, and it's more months, uh, maybe over a year um, in terms of vaccination and completely um, being able to kind of return safely out into the environment for the most at-risk population. Uh, So I think what we saw as original drop off some of that starting to recover. Shelly, your company uh, has over 20,000 caregivers and 4,000 nurses, and you're in one area of the economy that may be a bright spot for hiring right now amid an unprecedented surge of layoffs. And I'm wondering how easy it is for you to find individuals to hire at this time and just in general as the president uh, seeks to limit some of the immigration going forward. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think, um, you know, up until we were able to deploy PPE, which happened last uh, last week, um, beginning um, of the week, we were able to start deploying PPE. I think now it's becoming easier for us to be able to, you know, give the message that we're able to keep our caregivers safe, uh, as well as encouraging to come to or back to the workforce. Um, but I think that was, I think that's still a difficult call, even though there are jobs available. Um, many don't have uh, child care for their children. Uh, schools are closed. Um, most of our caregivers across the country are working moms, oftentimes single moms. Uh, so having the desire to want to uh, serve and take care of our most vulnerable, but at the same time having their own children to deal with. I know round four, there's some you know language being introduced in terms of Heroes Fund. Um, I think that's absolutely uh, critical that we're thinking about our frontline healthcare workers. Right now, that language is limited to only those that are billing the federal, state, local, or tribal governments. And we think that that uh, needs to be expanded to anyone who's keeping the at-risk population from overtaxing a health system and keeping them safe and reducing the the number of at-risk. And so we'll be looking for that in in our engagement with our members of Congress for round four. Just quickly here, Shelley, I'm wondering, are you finding that you're having to increase the salaries of individuals in order to entice them back? Absolutely. And we have done that and rolled out that capability to our franchisees probably about three weeks ago to be adding kind of an incentive type of pay. Uh, I, I think we've called it kind of a safe, a safe pay, safety pay uh, for our caregivers to encourage them to come back when they, we do know that their at-home costs are higher in terms of having to arrange for child care that schools are not able to provide today and wanting to be cognizant of that. Um, and even though, you know, the industry kind of banded together and was successful in 
getting an exemption for FFCRA at the same time that Saturday night we, you know, did, you know, declare victory with our franchisees. The immediate communication from me to the franchisees um, was just because we don't have to pay it doesn't mean we shouldn't. If any of our caregivers are um, symptomatic, um, you know, not feeling well or have contracted the virus, we should still make sure they're not having to worry about uh, where their next meal is going to come from and how their families are going to be taken care of. So um, we have stood stood by that um, um, position as a brand right. and at the local level by our franchisees as well. So uh, I think we're trying to balance the right things. We have a vulnerable population we need to be able to take care of. An FFCRA exemption was critical for us to be able to do that. But at the right. same time, we want to make sure our workers are well pr- protected and we can recruit the numbers necessary. That's going to become a challenge as more people want to pivot yep. and stay at home. Uh, so we're yep. looking for any and all ideas to do that. Shelly Sun, thank you so much for joining us. Shelly is the CEO and founder of Bright Star Care, talking about the in-home uh, care market, which is uh, facing unprecedented demand as uh, the population deals with the coronavirus. Uh, but very interesting to get her perspective on in-home health care. This is Bloomberg. Paul, there's a story that caught my attention in the past week. Disney, a company that you have mm-hmm. tracked for years, stopped paying 100,000 workers, which is roughly half its workforce, laying them off even as it protects executive bonus schemes and a $1.5 billion dividend payment due in July. This has raised a lot of ire among a lot of people, particularly with respect to uh, executive compensation, but also the dividend payment. Should they continue to pay a dividend as they lay off tens of thousands of workers to go on the public roll? This is a question in the forefront of many minds, both investment minds as well as political ones. And John Tobin has been thinking about it as well. He joins us now, Portfolio Manager of Epic Investment Partners. And you believe the companies should still maintain their dividends despite some of the catastrophic hits to earnings, as well as the layoffs that we're seeing that are now numbering into the millions. Why? Well, Lisa, I think I'd probably take a more nuanced approach to answering that question. I think our view is, the way I'd express it, is we expect companies to continue to follow sound capital allocation practices and policies. And I think we need to look at this question more on a company-by-company, situation-by-situation basis. If a company is doing reasonably well and maintaining its revenues, earnings, and cash flows, even in this episode that we're working our way through, it has a commitment to pay dividends that it has promised to investors. And that dividend, by the way, is a flow of income to investors. So it doesn't go out into the void somewhere. Real people are getting that real dividend payment. So to cut off the dividend payment is a source of income in many cases to many investors and many retirees who depend on that source of income. So it's not as simple as it seems to be, gee, times are really tough. How can companies justify paying dividends in this episode? And I think it's a a much more complex problem and question than, than just that. So uh, interesting. How do you feel about, I mean, there's also some discussion about companies, John, that are receiving, I guess, some of this uh, fiscal stimulus. Uh, and then also, you know, should there be, I guess, conditions there to that stimulus in, in terms of executive compensation or dividends? Um, how do you think companies are approaching that and investors? Well, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable approach. If your business is so fundamentally challenged in this episode that you need to apply for government aid, it's not at all unreasonable that as a condition for receiving that aid, 
that you agree, at least for a period of time, perhaps for the period of time during which you're receiving the aid, to halt dividend um, payments to shareholders, to halt share repurchase programs, and to adjust executive compensation levels. That's not unreasonable. What is unreasonable, I would argue, is a, a mandate or a directive to a company that says, regardless of whether you apply or need aid, and regardless of whether your business judgment tells you that you're generating enough revenues, earnings, and cash flows to maintain your promises to your shareholders, you should stop anyway. I think that's problematic. That's fair. And I think that people are, are looking at companies that are laying off significant swaths of their employees as uh, candidates for potentially cutting their dividends. I, I guess this push-pull that you talk about, maintaining your promise to your shareholders and trying to edify your balance sheet at a time of unprecedented distress, uh, that, these two, that these two issues are, are really in, in stark contrast. I'm curious from your perspective, do you think that shareholders will take a more active approach in rewarding companies? that act perhaps in a more socially responsible, I use that word, I, I hate using it because it could mean anything to anyone, but in a way that reflects something that, that feels right, whatever that means to them. Well, that's an interesting question. And I suppose that there will be that sentiment out there that people will look at a company and say, gee, I like this company. They did the right thing, whatever that actually means. But I would also say from, you know, from my perspective as a portfolio manager on a strategy that invests in companies that, you know, we look for companies that have sustainable growing cash flows that support sustainable growing shareholder distributions. And we expect those companies to invest in the business and grow. We expect those companies to make a decision, a capital allocation decision. Can I invest to earn a rate of return above my cost of capital? And to the extent that I cannot, then I should return that capital to the owners of the business. And those are the kinds of companies that we're looking for. So for me, and I think from a sound corporate governance and corporate finance standpoint, that, that should be the, the driving principle for these corporate management teams. And rather than doing the right thing and cutting dividends just because of the, the bad optics of paying dividends, so, John, what are some of the sectors uh, or companies that you guys are looking at now, given, again, just this tremendous dislocation that we've seen in the economies and in the markets? we got some more jobless claims today that just confirms how rough things are out there. How are you navigating it? Well, it's, it's tough to navigate, to be sure. It's, uh, it's an unprecedented situation that we're in. And our approach as we manage the portfolio is to try to look really, really carefully at each and every position that we have and assess the company's ongoing cash flow sustainability in this environment, sort of weed out the ones that we think are weaker and that we need to remove from the portfolio. But I will tell you, here we are in early days of quarterly earnings, and we've already seen, I think, a few companies maybe surprise the market with the degree of resilience that they have in their underlying businesses. So, for example, over the past week, uh, Johnson & Johnson reported earnings and raised their dividend. Procter & Gamble reported earnings, maintained guidance, and raised the dividend. Travelers, the insurance company, reported recently, raised the dividend. Lockheed Martin reported, and their results were quite good. So across the economy, across multiple sectors, we're actually seeing companies that are navigating themselves through this difficult episode and maybe doing better than, than you might expect. 
Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your Thank thoughts you. and perspectives. Uh, John Toman, uh, he is Portfolio Manager and Senior Research Analyst for APOC uh, Investment Partners. Uh, they have about $18 billion under management. So some really interesting thoughts there, Lisa, as it relates to dividends. And uh, in some scenarios, you know, John arguing that companies as pro- proper asset allocation should continue paying dividends, but clearly there's some some issues there as it relates to fiscal stimulus. It's an important point because people, real people, get those dividends and use yep. them for income. But there's a question of what it means to get government aid when you lay off tens of thousands of workers and send them to the public roles. And I think that this is going to be a debate in the front and center for a long time to come. Let's talk markets right here, and there's nobody nobody better to do that with than our good friend Barry Ritholtz. He's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. He's also the founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, so he wears a lot of hats. So, Barry, as we take a look at this little snapback in the green here today, how do you square that with you know, another very sobering uh, jobless claims number of $4.4 million? Yeah, everybody looks at the weekly jobless numbers as if it's breaking news. And and the reality is that really is an amalgam of all 50 states, the data they released released during the prior seven days. By the time the BLS releases this data, by the time the federal government releases the national data, anyone who wanted to assemble that by a state-by-state basis could have done it. So it's kind of old news. I know that sounds silly because everybody waits with bated breath, but you can really reverse engineer that pretty easily a couple of days earlier. Plus, is anybody surprised by this data at all? We've, we've watched 22 million people file for unemployment for the previous month. Nothing has changed. We're still under lockdown. People are still having a hard time getting through to their state uh, unemployment office. So we know the numbers are probably undercounted uh, because of that challenge. A- as long as we're under lockdown, maybe this starts to flatten out to four or three or two million a uh, a week. But, you know, we're somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of the people who had a paying full-time job in March are no longer do. And, and that's a huge number with enormous economic ramifications. Yeah, I was just looking at a Pew survey that shows that about 43% of U.S. adults say that someone in their household has lost a job Mm. or taken a pay cut due to the outbreak. I'm just trying to extrapolate this out as we pair this dismal data with the optimism in markets as to what exactly people are looking to. Is this a bet on the Federal Reserve and U.S. government that they will pump enough money into markets to inflate asset prices and perhaps give a little bit of a lifeline to enough of the population to enable a recovery in in fairly short order? I think it's a couple of different factors depending on your time frame. If you're a short-term trader, you look at a market that falls 35%, that create in in four weeks. That creates a tremendously oversold condition. Once the rubber band gets too stretched too far in one direction, we've seen it time and again. It tends to snap back, uh, at least partway, uh, on a temporary basis. No markets go in a straight line. Every bull market is has counter trends downtrends uh, that punctuate it, just like every bear market has these vicious rallies that, that move in the opposite direction. So, so that's just the short-term basis. The, 
the longer term perspective is we don't think this is going to last forever. We do see signs that we are either at or near the peak, if if not past it for, for New York. Other states are still on the upswing. But, you know, there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. We just don't know if it's daylight or an oncoming train, <laughs> which is why we haven't recovered fully. So it's interesting, Barry. Like I'm, You probably put me in a more cautious stance as it relates to the duration of these lockdowns and quarantines and potentially reopening the um you know the economy if you will um so with that backdrop is this a, a market that might be just bouncing along for number of months and or quarters until we really get that definitive view of okay we've got the testing or we've got some antibodies or there's we're closer to that vaccine is this something that just says this is going to hold this market in check well you know, nobody knows if it's late 20 or 21 or early 22 that you could check off all the boxes. Here, here's the uh, the full testing. Here's the contact tracing. Here's the antibody um, uh, protocol that will allow people who don't have it to at least develop some form of immunity, whether it's full or partial. We don't know. We don't know about the protocols or therapies that turn this from a potentially fatal disease uh, to a manageable disease. Look, look at things like AIDS. You never get cured of AIDS, but it becomes, um, a, there's a therapeutic that manages it. So whether that's six months or a year or two years, the market doesn't say, okay, this is, the economy is grinding to a halt and, and we're going to go to zero. It, it's trying to balance between the short-term drop of earnings and revenue and, and what were the forecasts for 2019, $175 on the S&P. Yeah. Maybe that drops to pick a number, 100 bucks. Uh, we're all spitballing when we're trying to come up with revenue and profit projections for 2020. Right. But I think we're all pretty confident that by 2021, certainly 2022, those numbers come back. Now, now there's a longer debate to, to be had about profit margins and leverage and, and how freely uh, and inexpensively capital has been uh, and debt has been extended and what might happen with the corporate tax rate post-election. That's a, a whole different conversation. In the front and center for investors is trying to figure out what data to look at in order to determine the scope and the length of this pandemic, of this issue. And joining us now is someone who has uh, an interesting take on this, Sam Hendel, president of Levin Easterly with $3.6 billion of assets, uh, also the founder of Data Miner, uh, which is very important as it comes to assessing the current crisis. Sam, as you devise an investment strategy, what data are you looking at? Sure. Hey, hey, Lisa and Paul, how are you? Um, we're, we're, we're really looking at, um, you know, um, really what we do, we're, we're value investors. And the most important for th thing for us is talking to companies, talking to the management teams, and really getting a firm understanding of what's going on in their business. And that's on the, on the micro level. On the macro level, there, there are a lot of data points that are coming out. And, you know, I, I certainly do, um, do use data miner. Um, a company I founded with, with two of my college roommates about 11 years ago, um, and that company is really on the forefront of um, getting information from social media and about 10,000 other sources. Um, and right now, we're, we're working with a lot of the government agencies who are on the front lines of this, and I'm seeing data on 
uh, outbreaks ahead of time, so, sort of you know before the testing hits, uh, what people are saying on the ground, um, and we are using that to sort of determine. You know, and I think it's a very difficult question, how long is it going to take for our, for our economy to reopen? So on the investment side, um, we are really talking to our companies and not trying to, you know, not, not really trying to, to aim and guess what the timing is for things to reopen, but still finding good businesses that are down in value, cheap on a free cash flow basis and have catalysts to unlock them. And some things that might be you know, defensive in this time, but also have some offensive components that we can take advantage of you know, th- these companies when the world reopens again. So, Sam, what are some of those sectors that you think have some of those characteristics? characteristics? Sure. I mean, the, the, the most defensive sector you know, cl- clearly has been consumer staples, um, healthcare. Um, these, there, there are a lot of companies that are actually doing well in this environment, and it's unusual the consumer has completely shifted spending. Everyone's staying at home and ordering, or ordering food in, uh, whether it's grocery or, or even some delivery, and they're spending money on telecom, they're spending on, the, on, on their wireless bills, they're spending on cable and entertainment, but a lot of the other consumer discretionary has gone out the window. And we're, we're really looking at trying to find a combination of you know, defensive, defensive sectors and defensive, defensive stocks within those sectors, but also looking at you know, stocks that have been very hard hit by this, whose businesses is impaired in the near term, but who has a strong balance sheet and can survive this and has a very strong business coming out of the crisis. So it's a combo of really positioning our portfolio to take advantage of the companies that are succeeding in this environment and then companies that we think will be the the best to bounce back um, once things go back to work. I've heard a lot of people say that there are going to be a lot of opportunities emerging from this crisis, and we certainly see a rapidly increasing pace of credit funds being raised by the likes of Oak Tree and Fortress. I'm trying to understand, though, how you get to a place where you can take advantage of these opportunities. Did you have excess cash going into this? Are you selling existing positions that you think are just going to be out of money for a long period of time? Yeah, we, we, we've certainly shifted our portfolio in a, in a significant way. Um, we, we really didn't have much exposure to travel names or um, you know, the cruise lines or airlines or anything like that. Um, but you had a period in, in really mid-March, mid to late March, which was a tremendous amount of chaos. And um, people were selling stocks. And it was really, I joke, the, the computers were selling. And so you have all this quantitative and algorithmic selling. And you know, for people like us who are talking to the management teams and understanding the companies, um, it's you know, it's, it's great that when when we talk to a company whose stock is down 50%, um, and this is the case with with Tyson Foods, had a conversation with them, and they said, yeah, our, you know, our business is doing great. Um, we're not selling to the prepared food markets, but we're selling. Um, we, we've shifted those supply chains, and we are you know selling a lot into the grocery store, and we can't sell enough chicken to people. Um, and we can take advantage of that during these, you know, during these challenging times. So, Sam, I guess one of the, the, the questions is just from a, stepping back and looking at the markets that had that big, you know, 30% plus move peak to trough there in, in that March period that you were just referencing. But since then, we've had, you know, almost a 50% retracement back up. How are, you, how are you viewing the market overall? Do you think there's risk that we retest lows um, in the context of a longer bear market? Yeah, I, I do think that you know this is a this is not a blip. Um, the, the 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 change in the economy right now and the uncertainty around what, what's happening and the ability for companies to to resume normal operations, um, it's very challenging to figure out. So I don't think this is a blip. I think this is 
you know, similar. I mean, it's a very different type of crisis than the global financial crisis in 2008. Um, but we are following that playbook here. Um, we're trying to hit singles. We're not trying to call the bottom. Um, at Levin Easterly, we're certainly, um, our, our, our mission is to know our companies, and we have a concentrated portfolio of about 35 to 40 names um, that we know very well, and we know their management teams. And we're, we're really looking to um, take advantage of some of these dislocations. And my view on, on the markets, I do think the market may have snapped back. You know, the, 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 the sell-off was, you know, um, without regard to specific companies. And now we're seeing, you know, some, I guess, order in the chaos where you're seeing the companies that are doing a little better start to outperform that have, you know, that, that, that have a little bit more of, um, of a clear path. Uh, but it's still a very uncertain time, and we're just trying to keep a clear head and um, follow our playbook from 08 and 09, buying those good companies with good balance sheets that are down and out of favor. And um, and we think, you know, in, in the long term, whether coronavirus, um, you know, comes back in, in in the fall, winter, or you know, we're not able to open up the economy for a while, that they they, they still have enough ballast to be okay during that period, and they'll do very well whenever the whenever the economy opens. We're speaking with Sam Hendel, president of Levin Easterly, with $3.6 billion of assets under management. Sam, uh, it's it's a very tricky time since so much of the economy depends on science and on the medical community and the fight against the coronavirus, which has put investors in this awkward position of having to moonlight as virologists, uh, virologists <laughs> as they try to bet on when the economy may reopen. What specific data points are you looking at to determine that path, given that even medical professionals basically are shrugging their shoulders and saying, we just don't know? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm certainly, I, I think everyone's unfortunately moonlighting as, 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 a, uh, as, as, a, as a late night virologist here. Um, <laughs> But um, you know we're we're, we're not try- again we're you know, we're not trying to call that bottom. But the data points I'm looking at, you know, we're looking at you know, number of cases per day, hospitalizations, um, and you see the trend line. The U.S. has has flattened the curve. Um, you're seeing you know t- um, today in New York we have fewer hospitalizations than we have yesterday. That's a big positive. And so I do view that as a you know a cautious yellow light. Uh, for maybe being a little more offensive in our portfolio. That being said, um, some of the data I'm seeing from from in my source at DataMiner, um, I see you know really about 10 to 12 days before the caseload hits, I can see hotspots around the country and around the globe. Um, I'm very concerned about the South um, in the U.S. Um, India could be a dr- dramatic humanitarian disaster that we just don't know about yet. And, you know, some countries in in Europe and South Korea in particular have done a great job on testing. Um, We haven't done a great job here and we just don't have enough tests. And so, you know, I I think it's very challenging for the economy to reopen when we're flying blind here. And I sort of take the example of, you know, uh, the meatpacking facilities that are closed right now. Um, There are three big port facilities that that, that are closed around the country. Um, You know, what happens, you know, if if we reopen the economy and there's a case at a school or at a at a at a, at a plant facility? What's the path that we take? Are we able to test all these employees on a day to day basis? And right now we're just not, and we need to build up that capacity, I think, before we can really, you know, get things moving in, in a faster way. But I think we will open slowly. Um, but I'm I'm you know I'm still cautious about the ability um, to do it in a in a way where we have procedures in place. Yep. I think individual companies are starting to put that, you know, are are starting to put together plans, um, but we probably need a little more on the nationwide basis on testing.
Hey, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts there. Sam Hendel, president of Levin Easterly, joining us uh, on the phone. We appreciate his thoughts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.